Welcome to the Good Research Podcast, where we talk about those topics that most interest you, helping you make your research study the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Dr. Lauren Seifert. episode 7 of Good Research. I am Dr. Lauren Seifert, and the Good Research podcasts are for research students as well as researchers who would like to brush up on research techniques and methods. In the first four episodes of Good Research, I discussed four basic questions that should be answered before a researcher's work begins. They were about ontology, epistemology, generalizability, and reflexivity. I gave some basic tips for devising a research question, and I guided listeners through an exercise with the four basic questions so that they might better understand their own assumptions and be more apt to select a research orientation that fits their assumptions. In addition, I described the varieties of research, including observational studies, case studies, surveys, quasi-experiments, and true experiments. Afterward, I went on to talk about a basic approach to qualitative research, comparing various research orientations as I described it. In episode five of Good Research, we explored null hypothesis significance testing in conventional traditional science. I described a bit about the scientific method and how we can make predictions and test them with conventional research techniques. Sampling from populations was our topic in episode 6 of Good Research, and we examined an example of a quasi-experiment in order to add context to our consideration of subject samples. Good Research begins with sound research practices, and one of the most fundamental of research practices is to start by stating one's assumptions. So I hope that you've been able to find a research orientation that fits you well after listening to Good Research Episodes 1 through 6. Furthermore, I imagine that you have been able to decide on a research question and think about hypotheses or predictions. Let's move on to explore ethics, a vital part of life and of good research. As we do so, I'd like to indicate some useful resources at www.clovepress.com. Clovepress Limited is dedicated to good research, and the free downloads at clovepress.com include a beginner's guide to behavior research methods that I authored. It provides a succinct description of many aspects of research including some of the most popular sampling techniques. In addition to that, it provides basic terms and descriptions of basic types of research. 
gives you examples as well. In addition, there are valuable tools related to research ethics on the internet, such as at the World Medical Association website, www.wma.net, and at the web pages for TRREE, which is elearning.tree.org. If you're in the U.S., then there are two other vital resources in research ethics. They're at www.hhs.gov forward slash OHRP forward slash and at www.fda.gov. These provide valuable guidance on federal guidance in the United States for human subjects protections. The Belmont Report, which was published in 1979, is a mainstay for researchers and it has provided the foundational values for research ethics guidelines within the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations. I'll have more to say about that in a few minutes. But let's begin this conversation about ethics by considering what types of ethics contribute to your good research. There are three types of ethics that will impact your work as a researcher. Your personal ethics, professional ethics in your home field or discipline, and research ethics. Everything that you do as a researcher is impacted by all three of these varieties of ethics. So let's take them one at a time and consider their roles. Your personal ethics are the set of values and rules by which you live. They are individualized and they impact everything that you do. In free societies, personal ethics are cultivated individually and culturally. And I can no more tell you what to value than you can tell me. Yet our values are influenced by those around us and our behaviors are significantly affected by what we believe to be right and wrong. Your personal ethics will influence how you engage the other two categories of ethics. If you value others and their well-being, then you may be especially attuned to the ethics within your profession and in research that relate to the virtue of humanity. That is, to recognizing and honoring the value of others simply because they are people, just as you are a person. If you value loving kindness or the tradition of hospitality, then the ethic of beneficence may resonate most with you. It involves efforts to do things that benefit others. Or if you are a champion of fairness, then the ethic of justice may be your focus. Moreover, if your personal ethics emphasize a live and let live approach, then you might narrow in on non-maleficence as a key. Whatever your personal ethics, engaging them and exploring them is important as you move toward good research. Because good research engages ethics. It opens wide a conversation about one's reasons for performing a study, 
whether for personal advancement, financial gain, benefits to those who are being studied, and or advancement of a greater good. How do personal ethics interact with your preferred research orientation? If you recall from previous episodes of Good Research, one's research orientation includes reflexivity, and a person's research orientation will help to determine one's approach to reflexivity. This is how one interacts with the subject matter of a research study and how one interacts with her or his own nature and the nature of the research participants. If your research orientation is in conventional science, then it includes methodological reflexivity, which may lead you to take a technical or logical approach to research ethics. Such an approach may be oriented toward finding out exactly what rules, guidelines, and regulations apply to your work and meeting the re requirements so that your research can proceed. For instance, if a conventional, traditional researcher would like to study the ways that caffeine affects learning, then he or she might look at the various ethics that apply to such an investigation and make a checklist, being sure that each ethic is addressed in the research protocol or plan for research. If your orientation to inquiry is through critical realism or action research, then your approach to research and professional ethics may be to engage in epistemic reflexivity, whereby you continuously scrutinize your own beliefs in order to find the ones that are inauthentic in their interactions with your professional and research standards. Such a researcher is prone to look at the basic principles that govern her or his professional actions and research behaviors. And he or she might constantly evaluate and reevaluate personal motives for trying to meet the ethics requirements within a given research project and think about the relative points of conflict between personal motives and professional and research guidelines. As an example, in my own work, with vulnerable populations, I frequently ask myself, what are my motives for studying persons with chronic health and mental health conditions? Do my motives cloud my abilities to honor the rights of those persons? As to persons with constructivist, interpretivist, or phenomenological orientations toward research, their personal ethics and interactions with professional and research ethics may be part of hyper-reflexive processes whereby they repeatedly question how their actions build the ethics or tear them down. A phenomenologist might question whether constructing an informed consent form and seeking signed consent from a potential participant is a part of a person-honoring interaction or a person-degrading action. This type of researcher might also argue that the very act of constructing and seeking informed consent is a significant part of the construction of the reality of the relationship between the researcher and study participants. 
So there is much to consider when it comes to your personal ethics and how they commingle with your research orientation. In turn, both influence your approach to professional codes of conduct and regulations for the protections of research subjects. About professional ethics, many disciplines have codes of conduct that determine one's entry into and ability to stay in a field. Examples in the U.S. include the American Psychological Association and the American Counseling Association. Each has an ethics code that defines and describes appropriate and inappropriate behaviors in practice, and each organization also prescribes ethics for research. This is true of the American Medical Association and NRBs as well. NRBs are nursing regulatory bodies in the 50 states and U.S. territories. In business, there are many professional and government organizations that offer guidelines for ethical research. Among them are the American Marketing Association, the Council of American Survey Research Organizations, or CASRO, and the American Association for Public Opinion Research, AAPOR. For any researcher, careful consideration of professional ethics is important, and you should take into account how your profession's ethics interact with your personal values and research goals. Now let's consider the fundamental principles related to research ethics. Most scientists around the world consider the Nuremberg Code to be a cornerstone. The Nuremberg Code was developed in the post-World War II era, when nations around the globe were grappling with the revelations about Nazi atrocities during the war crimes trials that were conducted by the International Military Tribunal. Ten basic principles were set forth in the Code and were agreed upon as fundamental to human research protections by the countries contributing to writing the code. Those basic principles include that participation in research should be voluntary for humans, should occur only with the consent of the participants, and should allow participants to stop taking part at any time during the study. In addition, Benefits should outweigh the risks of taking part in a study. Participants should be protected from death or disability. And human research should be based on previous studies with animals, unless that is not practicable. Furthermore, experimental procedures should be developed so that injuring or harming participants is avoided. Overall, the Nuremberg Code emphasizes that studies should be conducted for the good of society and that the facilities at which research is conducted should be safe. Those conducting the studies should be qualified to do the research. And a researcher should terminate a study when it becomes apparent that it is harmful or injurious to subjects. The Nuremberg Code was formulated in 1947, and this was the same year that the World Medical Association was created.
WMA, as it is known, is now a body made up of more than 114 associations of medicine from around the world. The 1964 Declaration of Helsinki and its later addenda are considered to be the gold standard for medical research and practice, and they were developed by the WMA. Significantly, the Nuremberg Code and the Declaration of Helsinki recognize the importance of one, respect for persons, two, justice, three, beneficence, and four, non-maleficence. The 1979 Belmont Report was a reaction to unethical behaviors among researchers in the U.S., and it provides the, the cornerstone of oversight guidelines in the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations. Among those is the common rule, which is 45 CFR 46. In 2018, the common rule was amended in order to expand criteria for risk assessment in determining the level of review that a study proposal must undergo before it is approved. The Belmont Report includes basic values from the Nuremberg Code, including respect for persons, justice, and beneficence. As an extension of the Belmont Report, 45 CFR 46 enacts those principles through regulatory guidelines for the oversight and conduct of research with humans in the U.S. As I mentioned previously in this podcast, the basic value of humanity is our sense that people matter simply because they are people. The ethic of respect for persons demands that we recognize and honor the personhood of each individual who might be one of our research participants. The ethic of justice is also based on a common value in human cultures, and it demands that we seek to include all types of people in research so that subpopulations can benefit from the findings. Yet the burden should not fall on one subpopulation to be research subjects, as this would be unfair. Beneficence is a principle for promoting good, and it is complemented by the tenet of non-maleficence, which is to avoid causing harm. Together, these four values form the foundation of research ethics. They are embodied in the international codes that I mentioned earlier, and in the regulations for research oversight in countries around the globe. How then do we translate these tenets into behaviors in research? The answers are these. Good research happens when participants are asked to take part in studies, not told that they must take part. Asking people to take part should include providing them enough information so that they are able to make the choice. Such details include the topic of the study, who is conducting it, what will be expected of participants during the study, how long participation will take, 
whether there are any anticipated risks or benefits to subjects, whether the study has been reviewed and approved by an ethics review board or institutional review board, whom to contact with questions, and a provision that taking part is voluntary and can be stopped at any time. If there are any alternative procedures that might be used or available to participants, they should be mentioned as well. Without those instructions, a researcher is not fulfilling her or his obligation to inform participants. Second, good research happens when investigators develop studies with justice in mind. Is a study likely to benefit a particular group of people? If so, are the implications for those who, are there implications for those who are not included? Is there a way to conduct the study so that more persons can benefit? And is that practicable given the scope of the research project? A third point about connecting ethics tenets in the behaviors that you will conduct in your research is that good research occurs when investigators create their procedures in ways that are aimed at helping and not harming people. So how do researchers develop such studies? Are there clear answers to questions about respecting people, being fair, helping humans and not hurting people? Well, these ethical dilemmas are why there is research oversight in countries around the world and why there are regulations for the conduct of research. In addition, countries like the US not only have regulations for the conduct of research, they also have rules for the creation of research ethics committees at the institutions and organizations where researchers conduct them. In the U.S., for research with humans, such committees are called institutional review boards, and they are responsible for reviewing and approving proposals for research. They help researchers to carefully consider whether they are in compliance with basic research ethics, and they make recommendations for changes when there are gaps in a researcher's approach to the ethical conduct of a study. For research with non-human animals, Standards vary much more widely from nation to nation. In the U.S., it is the Animal Welfare Act that provides research oversight, and the institutional committees that are responsible for research proposal review and approval are called Institutional Animal Care and Use Committees, or IACUCs. While I cannot provide advice about all of the ethics for research in this brief podcast, I can emphasize that your personal and professional ethics will interact with your observance of research ethics. Good research must include careful consideration of these interactions. In addition, I can direct you to some valuable resources about research ethics. I mentioned some of these previously. The Nuremberg Code is a natural starting place for any researcher who is performing studies with human participants. And there are many websites that cover the code and its 10 basic points. Another resource that I use is the TRREE, or TREE, training modules online. TREE is 
Training and Resources in Research Ethics Evaluation. And the TREE website supplies the international research community with many resources in several different languages. As you prepare for your good research project, I hope that you will be mindful of the ways that your personal ethics, professional code of ethics, and research ethics commingle. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Research. I hope that you have found it to be helpful. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Good Research. To find more episodes like this, go to www.clovepress.com and click on the resource link. Have a great day.